You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And this is episode 39. It's good to talk with you all again, and I hope you remain safe and healthy. Now, it's a gorgeous Sunday morning here at SMP World Headquarters. Spring has sprung, and I am just finishing my first cup of coffee, and I'm looking over at my second one. And over on Twitter, the hashtag Amphibian Week kicked off today, and there are a lot of biologists and conservation groups and other folks who are posting about amphibians, and uh, including friends of the show like Jody Rowley. Now, Twitter can be a real crap fest, uh, but if you are selective and if you keep your focus narrow, it can be a rewarding platform. I, I Myself, I pretty much stick to following folks involved in the sciences, and that seems to work pretty well for me. Now, before we get to this week's guests, we have some new patrons of the show. Martin Habecker, Daniel Dye, Clint Hankey, and Ross Maynard on behalf of the Biodiversity Group. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. Y'all may remember my conversation with Daniel, who operates Florida Backyard Snakes and is the mayor of New River. And uh, Ross is our guest this week, so it's all coming together. Now, you may notice that I use the term patron in place of Patreoners, like I used to. The principal support platform for the show is Patreon, but uh, it's not for everyone. And folks can also contribute using Venmo and PayPal and you can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com for more information on that. And thank you once again to all my supporters. Really appreciate it. Okay, so our guest this week is Ross Maynard of the Biodiversity Group. And I've been wanting to talk with Ross for some time now. We finally got our schedules to sync up a few weeks ago. The Biodiversity Group has been doing some important work in Ecuador, which is one of my new favorite places, and I can't wait to get back there. And for me, this episode has all the things in it. It has new species. It has adventure travel, including with some difficulties and conservation work. And there's even a Bushmaster in there. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, please be sure to check out the show notes for some ways for you to help the biodiversity group with their mission and maybe get some cool swag in the bargain. Also, at the bottom of the show notes are some photos that Ross sent me of some of the cool species that we talk about in the episode. And uh, I'm sorry to say that for whatever reason, my podcast hosting platform doesn't support a slideshow option within their WordPress frame. So all the photos are just kind of hanging at the bottom of the show notes like a tail on a kite. But anyway, let's get to my conversation with Ross. <laughs> okay. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the show. And it's my privilege today to be talking with Ross Maynard. Welcome to the show, Ross. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, and I've uh, been trying to get you on the show for a little while. And uh, you've had some scheduling issues. And I've had some scheduling issues. So it's finally just good to sit down and talk with you here uh, in the uh, tail end of April. And uh, April 2021. And uh, I, I have a number of things that I want to talk to you about today, but I, I want to get a little, I want to give our, our listeners a little background 
uh, about you. Uh, can uh, first of all, can you uh, give us a little bit of your academic background? Because uh, folks were talking to a herpetologist today, a scientist, a biologist, if you will, an ecologist, and so tell us all about it, Ross. Okay. Um, yeah. So I grew up in North Carolina. I was born in Annapolis because my dad was in the Navy, but at nine moved to North Carolina and. Then I went to NC State for my undergrad, and that was after going to community college for a number of years because it's you know it took me a while to get on track. Um, but I got my undergraduate in zoology, and Dr. Heatwall was my undergrad advisor, who is a sea snake expert and reptile ecologist. And then Dr. Dr. Harold Heatwall. Yeah, Hal Heatwall. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. A well-traveled guy himself. Um, and then I took. You know, being involved with the biodiversity group, I took a few years off from college. And then as I continued working with them, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school, um, which a younger version of myself never saw happening. And, you know, I wanted to apply what we were doing in a more meaningful way and, and also just further educate myself on how to better do science. Um, so I went to Stephen F. Austin State University in East Texas for grad school and I got my master's in biology. And uh, yeah, I did a project on road ecology where I was looking at how kind of a primitive dirt road influences uh, the distribution of amphibians and reptiles at a site in the Amazon of Ecuador. And um, yeah, yeah, that sounds like important, important, uh, an important topic because uh, there's always pressure to build roads in the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in, in the Amazon with oil roads being constructed left and right. And then, of course, you know, there's a lot of other influences uh, making a lot smaller roads that are harder to detect on, you know, Google Earth, for instance, that are from illegal loggers and and cartels, gold so miners, forth. gold miners. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's definitely a problem. So uh, you you have been working for the biodiversity group, uh, and I think since the aughts, sometime last decade. <laughs> yeah. So I I initially got started with uh, what was then called reptile research. Um, in 2007 when I was an undergrad and there was an opportunity to go down and I was like, Hey, you know, get school credit for going down to Ecuador and getting involved with research. So I, you know, at that time it was before the economy crashed and I was able to, to get a small grant and, um, that paid for most of the way. And <laughs> of course I was ruined from that point on my first trip to Ecuador. I, that obviously changed the course of my life. So Ecuador has been a huge part of everything I do ever since 2007. That's amazing. Uh, and we're going to get into that a little bit, but, but, uh, I want to get, uh, just a little more background on you. You currently, you live in Tucson, Arizona. You're based out of Tucson and, uh, you and your wife, uh, have a place there and you have five dogs and, uh, sounds like it's pretty noisy there sometimes. Five it, dogs. It can be. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, our, our alarm system doesn't go off multiple times, but we'll see how it goes. Um, did you, did you get shelter dogs or what kind of dogs do you have? Yeah. So first dog we got was, uh, when I was in grad school in Texas. And so we've had her since 2000, early 2014. And then when we moved here, we got another shelter dog and then we got another shelter dog and I thought we were maxed out because we have a pretty small home. But then last year I was working a consulting gig and I got the phone call saying there was some dogs down in Sonora that needed homes and, and we're suckers, so now we have to have dogs. And I think we're maxed uh, out yet again, but we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, bless you, bless your heart. Thank uh, you. uh, that's important work, and it's it's just uh, 
that's a lot of work to do. And uh, I'm sure you love your dogs and I'm a big yeah. dog lover myself. Currently dogless, but I'm still a big dog lover. I travel yeah. too much to have dogs at the moment. So let's let's talk about let I'm eager and anxious to dive into Ecuador and then the work you do down there for the biodiversity group. I I went to Ecuador. Well, let's see, what was it? 20, 2020, January of twenty twenty before before everything hit the fan. Yeah, uh, I went there and I spent just four or five days in Ecuador and. I think we got more than a, in two days. It was just two days of of actually herping down there, and we got over a dozen species of pristamantid frogs and a number of really cool uh, anoles and things like that. So, uh, I, so I'm also interested in hearing what you're up to down there because I I think uh, I was in the Mindo Valley area, and that uh, that portion of Ecuador is just fascinating. So, uh, I'd like to hear more about what you're doing there. So, why don't you tell us a uh, First of all, why don't you tell us about the biodiversity group a little bit so we understand what we're talking about here? Sure. So the biodiversity group started with uh, my good friend, Paul Hamilton, and he was doing a study. He was helping co-leads uh, study abroad classes when he was at ASU, uh, Arizona State University. And when he was down there, Ecuador, you know, obviously made a big impression on him as well. And at the time, there was there was these. Well, there's one paper that was really influential to him. There's a paper called uh, Biological Extinctions in Western Ecuador by Dodson and Gentry. I think it was published in the early 90s, maybe 91 or 92. And so that paper kind of outlined the dynamic of Western Ecuador. And it, you know, it really describes the – I'll describe Ecuador here in a bit because Ecuador is just super fascinating. But it really just described how post-World War II, the habitat in Western Ecuador was slowly just being devastated. And, and it was a it was a big issue. The authors of that paper were mainly uh, botanists. They study vascular plants, mainly orchids. But the storyline there is kind of telling for a lot of species, uh, and you know, namely amphibians as well. So they described how the habitat had been reduced to you know really tiny fractions from what it uh, historically was, and how a lot of species are going extinct before we can even understand anything about them, let alone describe them. So that was a really influential paper for him. So the biodiversity group really is a response to uh, the wave of habitat disturbance that has happened in Ecuador beginning uh, post-World War II. And he really wanted to focus on life overlooked, and in this case, reptiles and amphibians. So he started an NGO called Reptile uh, Research. Then over the years, he thought it would be appropriate to change the name. So in 2011, we changed Reptile and Amphibian Ecology International, which is a mouthful. Um, yep. <laughs> probably, you know, it describes what we do in a good way, but not the best name for an organization. So then we changed... Too many vowels in there too, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. And it, you know, the acronym <laughs> is R-A-E-I, so people would think R-E-I. Yeah. And, you know, just from right. a lot of standpoints, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. So then we decided to change the name yet again to the biodiversity group. And the idea behind that was, you know, the work we're doing is to largely help discover species that have yet to be described by science, um, understand these assemblages of reptiles and amphibians in places that are highly threatened. And, um, and we wanted, we didn't want to limit ourselves to just amphibians and reptiles uh, because our tagline is focusing on life overlooked. 
So in theory, we would love to have biologists that, you know, encompass uh, fish and orchids and, you know, all, all sorts of plants and, and especially insects, because that really largely describes biodiversity. Um, you know, of course, the challenge is when you're working for an NGO, you're not doing it for the money. Um, we don't make money. We just have a means to, to travel and do the research we are really passionate about. Um, but nonetheless, so the biodiversity group is essentially an organization that was developed in response to large-scale devastation of this habitat, which, like I said, I'll describe here in a bit to give it a little more meaning rather than just a tropical location that is biodiverse, because we can say that about most tropical countries. But yeah, so in, in, our, in our focus now has, you know, historically we had a handful of study sites that we worked at, but because of how we functioned, it was really hard to do much with the data. We were just getting backlog of data and then not being able to really look at it and get publications out there to do stuff with the data, which of course, essentially, no one can do anything with it if we can't publish the data. So now we're really hyper-focusing on one site, which as we'll talk about is the Rio Mindoriaki Reserve, and and uh, and we're being much more effective of what we hope to do, and bringing in different um, different groups of biologists and so forth. So we're you know we're slowly fine-tuning our methods and and accomplishing what we we hope to do. Okay. Well, let me ask you uh, just a uh, and I want to circle back to the biodiversity group at, at the end because I know uh, there's ways for, that folks can help uh, you know contribute to the the organization and maybe get some cool swag in, in the in the process. I know you guys have a store and whatnot. So we want to talk about that at the end. But it, it, cool. what kind of what kind of donations do you do you get grants? Uh, how, how is that how is that group supported? Is there a, a large grants involved or is it uh, you know is it the, the small stuff and the, the fundraising efforts? Uh, how do you how do you do that? How's that done? Oh I mean you know there's some backstory there as well. In in a nutshell uh, to answer your question, it's largely just small donations that we get. We have had we have had funding uh, organizations that have, you know, supported some of our initiatives, especially our Cameras for Conservation initiative that has to do with, um, you know, bringing local communities into citizen science work. And that, you know, that's always popular. That's pretty sexy and, and for good reason. Uh, but, the, but the research and uh, the science has been harder to, to fund, especially when you're focusing on you know, amphibians and reptiles, it's, it's not quite as easy as birds or jaguars or, you know, macro life, but yeah, so it's, it's largely small donors. Um, we've had, we've had the benefit of a lot of, you know, supporters that are just interested in the same field, like Harper's, um, and other people too, that just care about biodiversity and doing good things. So, you know, we feel really fortunate, but we definitely work on a tiny budget. Okay, well, I'm going to hammer my audience when we're done with this because I, I, you know, <laughs> okay. I, I myself will will support you, and uh, I will make sure other people do. And I'm I'm shaking my fist at the microphone right now. So we feel the uh, love, man. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll get something done. And and if there's any of you uh, a millionaire fat cats listening to this too, and you're just uh, s- sitting on an extra pile of money, get in touch because uh, we we could. Uh, Get some over Ross's way and 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 do some good with it. So, so anyway, uh, let's let's go. And you want to talk about the uh, the reserve, right? You have a place called the the real Manduriaku Reserve. Does I say that right? That's pretty good. Yeah, the real Manduriaku okay. Reserve. All right, tell us about that. Yeah. So this reserve is fascinating, and we officially started working there in 2016. So this site this site sits in northwestern Ecuador in Imbabura province, and it is uh, from elevations roughly from 1,000 meters to 2,000 meters, and it's in this 
river canyon. Um, so kind of a, a really steep river valley. And it's all, the reserve itself, as of now, is only on the western slope of this uh, river canyon. So it's a really steep terrain. Um, and it's got these beautiful, pristine streams that go along the side of the slope. And then they flow in, their, you know, tiny little tributaries to the Rio Mendoriaku. And the Rio Mendoriaku is, you know, that it flows into the Rio Guayabamba, which is a major river in western Ecuador that ultimately flows into the Rio Esmeraldas. Um, you know what? I'm going to describe Ecuador for you real quick because I think the Rio Mendoriaku... That would be good. Yeah. Because um, the way I see it is the Rio Mendoriaku Reserve is a slice of the product of what encompasses Ecuador, and specifically Western Ecuador. So I'm going to try to paint a picture. <laughs> okay. Okay. So if you think about Ecuador, or if you think about South America, the, one of the, the main characteristics of it is the Andes Mountains, longest mountain range in the world. And Ecuador, despite being the size of Colorado, so it's relatively small, it is the only country that's on the equator. And it has this unique, it's where, so there's two main currents that kind of flow along the Pacific coast of South America. And coming from the north, you have what's generally called the Panama current, sometimes the California current, uh, Pacific coast current, mm -hmm. but whatever, it's a warmer current and it flows from the north to south. And then coming from the south, you get a much colder current and that's the Humboldt current. And Ecuador lies right where the confluence of these two currents are. And of course, then they'll flow out along the equator, roughly, out to the Galapagos. And that's, you know, because of the Humboldt current and the cold waters that it brings there, you get penguins on the equator. Um, but these currents are which really... Is, in, oh, go ahead. Which is awesome. I know. I still haven't even been there, despite <laughs> being to Ecuador oh, 14 man. times. <laughs> oh, um, oh, I feel your pain. I know. One day, you know, I, I, I'm... <laughs> I'm perfectly happy and feel like a kid when I'm on the mainland. So I'm, 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 I'm content. Um, but yeah, so these currents are really important. So you have the Andes, of course, and then you have Western Ecuador. And these currents are really important because it really dictates the weather pattern. So if you think about South America, going south from Ecuador and even within Southern Ecuador, you get desert. It's, you know, you have the Atacama Desert. And even in Ecuador itself, uh, you get little portions of desert and uh, desert scrub tropical uh, thorn scrub. Um, so it's really dry down there. And then to the north, it's it's super wet. That's where you get the Choco Forest. Um, it's one of the wettest places on planet Earth. It has some of the most diverse, uh, biodiverse ecosystems uh, that can be found. And what happens is as the Earth oscillates, you get the confluence of these two currents shifting up and down over, across the equator. So essentially from spring to fall, so, uh, southern Ecuador is much drier because that Humboldt current is pushing up past the equator and it's the dry season for the Northwest, even though it's still not that dry, but just drier than it normally is. And yes. then uh, from the fall to the spring, then you have the Panama current pushing uh, down past the equator. So that's the wet season and that's the much warmer current. So it's this really unique dynamic that you can't find in other countries. So you get Ecuador itself, Western Ecuador itself is largely this big ecotone of uh, transitioning from dry forest to moist forest to wet forest as you go north. And so the Rio Mendoriaki Reserve sitting on the slopes of the Andes uh, is just unique in the sense that it's it sits in this area that is super wet and has this influence of this unique weather pattern. Well, I, I'm looking at a map of Ecuador right now. I'm multitasking. And uh, it, I think it's interesting that, you know, that basically the, the Andes or the northern Andes just kind of run right smack dab 
through the middle of the country, north to south. Yeah. And, uh, and so when you're talking about the reserve, that is in the northern, northwestern portion of the country. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. It's, um, okay. So, so if you look at where Quito is, it's roughly, it's only six feet, 70 kilometers from Quito as the crow flies. Okay. And Quito is up in the, in the, basically the northern eighth of Ecuador. It's up there in the top, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's in the province of Pichincha and um, yeah, it's in the inter-Andean Valley. So yeah, you have the Andes that kind of bisects the, the country and you have the, the Cordillera Occidental and the Cordillera, Cordillera Oriental. And there's an inter-Andean Valley and Quito sits right in that valley. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So now we, we kind of know where you're at in, in Ecuador and where you're working and what the situation is. So tell us, tell us some more here. Okay. Tell us about the reserve then. Now we're getting to the reserve. Put your rubber boots on. <laughs> uh, okay. So the story with the Rio Mendoriaca Reserve, I mean, we're talking about a relatively small reserve. It's about, as of right now, it's roughly 800 hectares. Uh, and it should be growing soon too. Uh, we're, um, Echo Minga, who manages the reserve, is going to be acquiring some more plots of property. Um, and it's already grown substantially. But So the way it became a place on the map that people actually know of is the original landowner of the property, Sebastian Kong. And he is a, uh, a super passionate conservation biologist that focuses on Andean condors. But back, I want to say in 2010, I believe, they had an opportunity where a friend of a friend had a plot of primary habitat, primary forest for sale, and it happened to be this property. But at the time, this property was almost impossible to access. So basically, him seeing the property before they bought it was someone pointing in that direction up in this canyon that roughly kind of is oriented north-south. It's a little bit north, a little bit northeast to southwest. Um, but they basically kind of pointed up in the canyon and said, the property's up in there. He looks, and he's like, whoa, this looks incredible. Can't really see it, you know, within the forest itself, but yeah, add the shopping cart, let's go. Because it was super cheap. Like they got a steal. I don't know for how much, but I believe him when he says it was, it was uh, something he could not pass up. So he buys the, pro he buys the property and, um, you know, for a long while he wasn't even able to access it, but slowly the, there was a, a cattle path that was formed going up to the nearest community of Santa Rosa de Manduriaki. And so you would walk from the, town lower down, Cielo Verde, and you would just kind of hike up this cattle path. And so for a couple of years, uh, Sebastian was trying to find someone to go up to the reserve with him or, you know, to his property with him. And a guy by the name of Ryan Lynch, who's a good friend of ours and used to work for the biodiversity group, who now lives in uh, Ecuador as he's married to an Ecuadorian, he approached him because they were friends and it's like, hey, you want to come to my property with me? It's super remote. It'll be brutal but there would be amazing frogs. And he's like, dude, yes, you don't have to twist my arm. So they finally made it to the reserve uh, or to the, yeah, I keep saying the reserve, but the property, which would become the reserve in 2012. And it was like the first night Ryan describes it as like they, there was this old primitive kind of what's left of an old cabin. And they were just kind of camping out there. And there's two streams that border this cabin. They jump down to the stream and right away, like he finds this tiny little toad that initially he thought might be an Adelopus, but just, didn't recognize it. Um, so he took loads of photos. Uh, you know, they found some adults as well. And at first, wasn't even sure if they were the same species. 
And it took them like six months to figure out what it actually was, which turned out to be what was called at the time Andinofrini alali. Um, since it has been, you know, the genus has been switched to Rabo. But yeah, so this was a toad. Um, so Rabo alali essentially put Manduriak on the map because it was the it was only known from one specimen, and that specimen was collected in 1970, and it wasn't described until 1985. And there's no color photographs. Uh, when you look at the description, it's kind of some line drawings and I, I think maybe some black and white photos. Uh, but it was one adult female. And th th that's like it. That's all that's known of this species. So they put two and two together and figure it out. And it turns out it is this species thought, you know, once extinct. So let's get into Rabo Alali a little bit. Um, this is one of the things I made a note on. I wanted to talk to you. First of all, and folks can check this out because you, you have a photo of Rabo Alali that graces the cover of uh, Herp, Herp, the Herp Review, uh, December 2020. And that's a, a big deal. It's a great photo of a an animal that never had a color photo anywhere before. And um, what what amazed me, not only the fact that it's sort of been sitting around uh, – not to undiscovered, but just sort of ignored or or lost to science for so many years. But that genus has, uh, you know, in where I go in Peru, we have uh, Rabo gutata, which is this toad about the size of a catcher's mitt, <laughs> big bulky thing. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, and it's amazing that your delicate, gracial little uh, Rabo alali could be in the same genus with the, the big bulky Rebu Gatata. I'm just blown away by that, how they could be in the same genus. So, Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. You know, it's, um, whether or not Andino Franny should have, you know, been sunk is, you know, perhaps slightly questionable. But, you know, regardless, uh, you know, toad diversity is, is immense. And, you know, this toad is definitely quite a bit different from a lot of toads within that genus they're mostly arboreal and you get this crazy ontogenetic shift from juveniles to adults i mean you know one of the reasons the juveniles the one that graces the covers i mean they're just they're sexy they are absolutely gorgeous um yeah. the adults are very incredible looking as well i, I think um and I, and I should acknowledge too the the first color photos of this species were by ryan lynch and he actually had I don't know if you call it a cover photo because Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, that journal, they don't have print journals, but it, it was kind of the cover for that that issue. And when they published that rediscovery, so it, it's it's been it's gotten some love, which is fantastic. Very good. Thank thank you for giving credit where credit is due there because that I didn't <laughs> know. Uh, very good. Uh, and so I'm also this is cool because this isn't the result of uh, a lot of work, and at some point. The toad gets – it's the first thing, bada-bing, bada-bang, bada-boom, right off the bat, the toad is is there. Uh, so what a what a great start, right? I mean, this area – obviously, you look, uh, people are looking at this area with uh, rubbing their hands and going, what else can be here? What is in this re ecoregion here? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, so, yeah, with Rabo Alali, that kind of put Manduriak on the map. And that was when, you know, Ryan would obviously say, like, dude, we've got this toad that is incredible. And, uh, you know, we're all going crazy, like, man, I have to see it. So, you know, long story short, the biodiversity group, we kind of decided as an organization, like, let's, you know, let's let's go to this reserve and 
and do what we do. Let's, you know, try to document the assemblage of amphibians and reptiles that coexist in this canyon with uh, Rainbow Wallalai. And, you know, let's study more about the toad, too, and, and try to figure uh, out what's going on with its natural history and, and give it an assessment, too. Because uh, at the time, IUCN just had it listed as data deficient. And fortunately, since then, we were able to reevaluate it. And now it is li listed as critically endangered. It, the Rio Mendoriaki Reserve is the only place in the world where this toad is found as of now. Okay. And we should talk, we should mention about the IUCN, too, because this, this, uh, this listing is is used by conservation groups and governments uh, and and, con and you know people that make decisions about uh, what what gets preserved and how much land gets set aside. They use the IUCN listings quite a bit, correct? Yeah, exactly. It's um, it, it's a it's a huge boost to the conservation efforts when we can work with the personnel at the IUCN and uh, global wildlife conservation to get these uh, listings uh, reassessed. And so, for example, like, you know, if you're applying for grants or you're trying to demonstrate like, hey, we really want to acquire some money to better manage this area and, and to expand it as well, because, you know, habitat disturbance is encroaching on, on all fronts. Um, so it's, it's, it's essential to the survival of the species. And so, yeah, getting it relisted, the critically endangered has been huge. And then as we can talk about more, like, the, this reserve is the gift that keeps giving. I mean, we've found so many other incredible species as we've worked here. Uh, so before I ask you more in-depth stuff, how many, how many species have you worked up in this, in this region, this, this side of this steep canyon? As of now, we have 102 species, I believe. So 53 amphibians and 49 reptiles, which, you know, considering the elevation to the reptiles, that's, that's pretty good diversity. That is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you went there for the first time and, and it's pretty remote. So you have to, you bring in a tent, you pack in a lot of food or you using burrows or how, what's the, what's the plan for getting folks up there to stay for weeks at a time? Is it kind of tough? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's getting better though. So the first time, well, when Ryan went, it was, I imagine it was brutal because yeah, <laughs> they just packed it in and I think they got dumped on as well. So it, it, everything they have is drenched. And then when we first made our first uh, our official trip to the reserve in 2016, that was October of 2016, as my wife would like to say, that was uh, the honeymoon that I went on without her. <laughs> we had just gotten married and then I went to Ecuador. Um, yeah, but, you know, she expects that from me. <laughs> but, um, she, yes. She knew, she knew what she was getting into here. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> if she says otherwise, what, what it's she, a lie. What does your wife do? Uh, what, what, is, what is she up to? She's a scientific illustrator. She has her, uh, so she's a freelance illustrator now, um, and her business is called All Forms of Life, which is a play on her last name, which is spelled A-A-L-L. Um, yeah, and she's got, you know, her art studio here, and she is a workhorse. She's always... Now, I'm looking at your wall behind your head. Is, is that her work on the wall? Oh, no. There? You know, we've got her work a lot of places, but that... <laughs> That's not her. Oh, work. that's somebody else's. Those are some okay. reprints. Yeah, those those are some reprints from okay. some old her publications. That's awesome. Uh, I, I boy, I really want to get into that, but let's get. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Uh, what a cool job. Uh, but let's get back. Let's get back to uh, to the reserve because uh, I'll lose my focus here because I'm like sometimes I'm like uh, a kid who can't in a candy store and I can't uh, see one thing and then I see another thing and there's all the bright shiny the objects. <laughs> 
Uh, so, so you get up there and you guys have to get up and camp there. You spend a couple of weeks there, and what do you what do you do to do uh, when you go up there and you say we're gonna do a survey? What's what's the method for doing a survey? Do you do you divide it up into areas and work yes. those areas, or divide up the habitats, or how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'll finish my my thought because you know I'm like you, I I. I, I... Staying focused is hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, we get to that community, which is about three, four hours driving from Quito. And then when we get to the community of Santa Rosa de Mandiriacu, which, you know, is a beautiful place, um, we do rent out meals from them. And now we do. 2016, we did not. We hiked everything in, which made it. It was one of the toughest hikes I've ever done. Um, but yeah, it takes, uh, it takes a handful of hours to get into the, what we would call the first base camp or the reserve cabin. And yeah, it's uh, you go from about 900 meters elevation from the community, and that first base camp is at 1,200 meters, and it's just up the slope from the Rio Mendoriaki, which is a pretty good sized river. And then, so 2016, we focus only at that first base camp. Our next trip in January, February of um, 2018, you did it, actually we focus at that base camp as well. But then, and trips since then which have also gotten easier as we go. Now we do have mules take everything up to the, the first base camp. And um, do you ride the mules too, or do you walk? You know, as much as I would like to save my energy and ride the mules, I, we have gotten some gold just hiking into the reserve, you know, finding herps. You know, when you're on a mule, you can't, you can't do anything about it. If you see a snake darting across the trail. So we, we don't ride them, but the, all of our stuff does with the exception of our cameras. Okay. Um, well, I've never ridden a mule, so that that, that there was sort of, I had sort of this cool romantic <laughs> notion of riding mules up through this valley, like you know, Treasure of the Sierra Madre or one of these movies where where people do those things, and it sounds pretty cool. But but okay, I, yeah. I'm on board now. I, I'm pack, sure the mules. mules. Have, I'm sure the mules appreciate that we don't jump on them. But um, oh yeah, I mean, they uh, have... mule look at um, a mule would look at me and go, oh, hell no. Oh man! Yeah, oh, but hell no! <laughs> you got. You should. I have to send you some photos of what they have to walk through to get to this uh, cabin. So, the Rio Mendoriaku and all of these little small streams that flow into it, they are like, they have boulders that. Man, I'm trying to think of a better way to put it, but it's like someone poured lube all over them. Like they're as slippery as they come, and ah, okay. it, I don't know how they make it through the river and not spill. Like we're worried every time. Like yeah, our stuff's going to be wet, but they somehow manage, and uh, we cross a little footbridge that goes over the Rio Mendoriaki to cross the, because the community is on the um, east side of the river. And uh, yeah, so it, it's quite the hike in. And then, so because we're talking about a reserve that is in a really steep river valley, and which is more of a canyon, it's, um, you know, the habitats are diverse. So it's mostly all primary uh, forest in there. It's, it's cloud forest. Um, and of course, the higher you go up, the more wet it becomes and the more the clouds kind of just hover above you. Um, but it's, it is a super wet reserve nonetheless. And, and the habit, there are some small patches of disturbance. Uh, but yeah, you know, our focus is to try to survey, um, along the streams themselves, uh, especially for glass frogs. And then, you know, there's some, there are trails cut where we can survey the primary forest as well as the, the disturbed patches. And so really we're just trying to cover each element of the habitat that we can find there. And, and that includes the disturbed habitat around the community. And, and of course, we're encompassing too this this impressive elevational gradient. And beginning in uh, in 2019, we made a second base camp that is on the ridge line, 
And that, because before we just had a trail that would go up there and we would opportunistically hike up what we would call mountain trail and get up to the higher elevations from like 1700 meters to 1900 meters. And then since then we've created and established an actual clearing where we can pitch our tents, which it is just all tents that we uh, camp out of. And, um, and that sits at about 1900 meters elevation and we can get up to about 2000 meters elevation. And so we're covering all of these habitats and this kind of transition from, I guess in a community where we start, which would be more typical choco and uh, uh, wet forest, um, tropical wet forest. And then as you go up, you know, it kind of transitions slowly to uh, moist forest and wet forest. And the bromeliads and the epiphytes really start characterizing uh, the habitat around you. I mean, it, it is beautiful, beautiful cloud forest. Do the trees start getting smaller when you get that high or are they, are you not high enough for that or? No, like this Andean montane forest is, uh, it's not door forest. Um, okay. So the, the, the trees are still pretty big. And yeah, it, it, it's, I, I haven't been in any like cloud forest that's characterized by those kind of the dwarf smaller trees. Okay. And one more, one more time. How many hectares is the reserve? Uh, as of now, it's 800. And the, the goal is to increase that to, I believe, about 1,300. So yeah, that's something else I should point out too. So the importance of like discovering something like Rabo Alalai, that essentially not only got Menduriak on the map, but it also was one of the convincing elements to have the current managing organization, uh, Fundacion Ecominga, take on this reserve because they have a handful of reserves that are on the eastern slopes of the Andes. And so Sebastian and Ryan went to these guys and said, hey, we have this property that I own and I would I need it to be properly managed. Like Sebas's heart is in the right place. And this guy, he's an incredible guy, and a really good friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they went out of their way to make sure that this place is properly managed and has some you know, reserve staff in there at all times to, to help protect the land. And, and Rabo Alalai was one of the influencing factors there. Um, so okay. re- re- really important. And, and so since then, Ecominga has been using the data that we collect um, on not just Rabo Alalai, but all of these other species we've been finding. And, you know, when they're applying for a grant, they, you know, things that go along with that are the images that we're taking in and the data we're collecting and the publications we've been able to put out, you know, saying that, like, we can demonstrate how important and how unique this, this single canyon is and how different it is just from the canyons next door. Which is incredible, right? Yeah, and and so uh, just for my uh, American listeners out there, eight hundred hectares is around two thousand acres, close to two thousand acres. Just to give you an idea, uh, and you think, well, that sounds pretty big, but not really, right? It's kind of a it's kind of a small patch compared to what other land is there, right? Yeah, relatively speaking, it is a small small reserve. I mean, it's a good amount of land, but it is it's not huge. So we would we would like it to be much bigger at some yeah. point, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the objective, you know. And and also too, like on the it's interesting. I mean, one thing that we have kind of on the docket that we would like to do is we've done some sampling on the opposite side of the river to see if Rabo is also there. So far, we have not found him there, but we would like to see on the other side where there's a lot more disturbance what species we can find, and you know, and compare that to you know where the reserve is. Do you do you think? Uh, I mean, eventually you you have enough data where you can have some sort of model for this canyon area with a river at the bottom and some disturbed areas. Do you think you can take that and then put that in play in the next canyon over and and see make comparisons or have expectations about what what might be there? 
Yeah, so one of our goals moving forward is to so there's there's a lot of reserves in the surrounding area. So if you know, and I can I can try to send you a map so you can include it with the you know the podcast info to show this. But there there's a number of reserves that surround the Mendoriaca Reserve, just not to the south and um and a, into the into the west. But um so right to the east of the reserve is a larger reserve, which is a Bosque Protector, which is a protected forest called Los Cedros, and we'll talk about that more in a little while. But, uh, okay. and, and, you know, for example, this reserve has been established for, I think, 30 years or something. And it is a, man, I think a little more than five times the size of uh, the Mendoriaki Reserve. And then on the other side of the ridgeline from where the Mendoriaki Reserve is, is uh, Bosque Protector Cebu. And that is a largely unexplored area and a pretty decent patch of primary forest itself. And then just north of the reserve is a huge, huge, huge ecological reserve called the Kodokachi Kayapas uh, Ecological Reserve, which is essentially, oh. it's essentially the same as our national park. So it has legitimate protection, government recognized, uh, you name it, and, and okay. funded. I just, I just, I see it on my map here on my phone and it looks really large. Yes. So that's just, that's just north of where you're at. Exactly. And so, and so the, the goal is, is to i would love to take data from other reserves and not just from the ones in the immediate area but um you know throughout northwestern ecuador and 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 look at the data and compare the beta diversity looking at how these reserves um they're harboring species that are unique in and of themselves and so you can just go over a handful of canyons and you're finding completely different species uh i, I think that would really demonstrate the dynamic that is happening in western ecuador where you know the andes the andes mountains are relatively new like they're I don't, I don't know how old they're like 10 million years old or something, but and the Western slopes yeah. of the Andes is much steeper than the East. So you get these canyons and these steep um, cliffs and they provide barriers for dispersal. So I think a confluence of factors really has worked to, to create this biodiversity you find in this region. And, you know, that this steep uplift is absolutely one of them. And it explains why you're finding different stuff just from the next Canyon over to the next. I see. And do you do you feel do you have a hunch uh, about um, animals like uh, your, your, the toad, uh, Rabo Alalai? Do you have a, a hunch that they may exist in other canyons within the area? Is that a good bet, or who knows? It's hard to say, but I think you know, I think with Rabo Alalai, it's certainly possible. So the the type specimen was collected from essentially Mindo. It's Tenda Yapa, um, which is immediately adjacent to Mindo. And, you know, okay. it's a weird thing. Like, we can't really explain why that multiple efforts to go back and rediscover um, Rainbow Isle of Life from the Mindo area has never happened. Because there's good habitat around there. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I do think that Rainbow extends up into potentially the Cotacachi Cayapas Reserve, um, maybe in Los Cedros. We have, we're hoping to get into the southwestern portion of Los Cedros to, uh, to look for them and some of the glass frogs that we're finding at uh, Mendoriaku. But yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but I would think with the Rabo, they do occur elsewhere, uh, but well, in remote areas. You know, you have a, a toad and you say, at this point, your your realm of knowledge is, this toad only occurs here. And that that's that's like the worst case scenario, right? You want that toad in more than one place. Uh, yeah. You want that toad distributed in, in a number of places so that you know, there's, there's some fallback. There's uh, there's a reserve there. If something happens to that one valley, uh, you know, oil spill or 
you know, complete development or gold mining or whatever the heck it might be, you want to be able to, uh, you want to know that there's an, you know, assurance groups somewhere else in the region, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which is why it's, um, which is why it's important to know where these things are at. Yeah. You know, so I, I said earlier, um, right now we have, I believe it's 53 species of amphibians we've documented at the reserve. What's crazy is that of those, uh, half, almost exactly half are threatened. So they're either listed as vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. And that's, you know, that's alarming. I mean, it's, it's somewhat a byproduct of the limited distributions you find with these species, but it's also quite telling, um, you know, what our influence is on this region, uh, you know, human influence. It's, um, right. it's certainly concerning. And un- uh, we'll get into this, I guess, towards the end, but mining is a huge problem now in Ecuador. Um, it's really picking up. There are some, yeah, there's some major court cases going on that we can talk about as well that will largely dictate the future of this region. Okay. Yeah. I want, you know, let's, let's talk about that at, at some point. Uh, tell us, uh, I, I think I, if I had this right, there's been some uh, more than one new species from this area. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Like I said, it's the gift that keeps giving. So rainbow Let, happened. Let's get into that. <laughs> let's get into that. That's a rainbow happened. And then, so once we started our work there, actually in the 2016 trip, you know, Paul Hamilton and I, we'd kind of take two different groups out and we'd uh, go uh, do our surveys. And there was one night, you know, I'm going to throw Paul a little bit under the bus here, but in a, in a good way. But, he, you know, we, we'd get back to the cabin and, you know, kind of like, here's my camera, give me your cameras, look through the photos. Because at the time we tried to get all in situ photos of animals, you know, nothing like Nothing spectacular, but just something to demonstrate like where they were and you know how they were when we came across them. And w- one glass frog I came across is they were uh, on their uh, transect. You know, I'm looking at, I'm like, Paul, where's this one? Did you bring this one back to the lab? And he's like, Which one? I didn't bring back a glass frog. And I'm looking at, I'm like, This one here. And he looks at it and he goes, No. And I was like, Dude, this is incredible. I don't know what this is. This could be a new species. And he had there's a more common glass frog called a spatter on a cross of weapon. And it, oh, I know that frog. Yeah, yeah it's super yeah. common. You can find it up in the Central America. And it's, it's it, if you've been to the Neotropics, you've probably seen it, at least you know in the right area. I did. Uh, Espadarana prosebilipon. Yeah, that right? one. That's the yes, one. I've seen that. I've and seen the Espadarana. Yeah, super cool glass yeah. frog and really very. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, it's a good one. But um, this, I was looking at the image, and you know, I thought Paul. Paul does so much, so I'm not. I'm just giving him more time. But he didn't recognize it as being something a little different, um, and that's fine. But you know, right away I'm thinking, I'm like, this is cool. Like we've got to find more of these. That trip we did not find any, but the um, but we had it on our radar, and we checked with our collaborator Juan Guaysamin, who is a glass frog expert, and um, he works at the San Francisco University in Quito. Um, unfortunately, he has not made it in the field with us, but he is a critical component of the work we do. And I showed it to him and I was like, man, I think this is a new species. And he emails back super excited, like, yes, (laughs) that's a new species. And uh, so that was one of the species. And that one we named Nymphargus Lenduriaki to honor the community and the reserve. Uh, We really wanted to kind of foster a sense of pride with the the local people who we absolutely love. And I'm talking about a a really incredible group of people that we have become friends with and are, are very grateful to. Nymphargus, is that the genus? Nymphargus, Nymph- yeah. Nymphargus? Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's the common name is Menduriaku glass frog. Okay, very cool. Yeah, so that, cool. that was the first new species. And then the second one was a, a type of terrestrial breeding frog, meaning they 
they lay their eggs um, in terrestrial situations, whether arboreal or in the leaf litter. Uh, this one, most certainly in the leaf litter. We don't know exactly where, uh, but it's um, it's a really tiny frog. Uh, maybe not as incredible looking as the glass frog, but it's uh, the, the scientific name is Noblella whirlier, um, or whirly's uh, leaf frog, and it it's like less than 20 millimeters uh, long. So we're talking small. Um, oh yeah. But wow. yeah, so that was a, a second new species that we described from the reserve. And I think there's a third one of Pristomanus, um, which I'm I'm so in love with that genus, Pristomanus. I think they're incredible. Mm, um, me but too. But we, we need to find more specimens because we've only found one, maybe two. But somehow the tissue got contaminated, so that was a huge bummer. So that's a target for our next trip for sure. Very good. That genus is amazing. Uh, lowland forest lowland tropical forest to rain, uh cloud forest up where you're at they they're just everywhere i they're just so diverse i love them big <laughs> little so cool. fat skinny they're just amazing i know we got the uh pristamantis appendiculatus uh up in near mendo in the mendo valley and they, they call them the pinocchio uh frog they have all these uh, tuberculate protuberances to match the lichen and, and so on and so forth that occurs in a cloud forest. It's just an amazing species. Uh, just just the way uh, you can walk along and find a, a handful of different species and each one's occupying a little bit different niche and looks different or has a different body shape or different uh, size to it. It's just an incredible genus. So I'm right there with you. I uh, And I think they... Um... They, they really kind of speak to the diversity and the complexity of the habitat as well. Like, so for example, let, let's, if we look at the, the reserve, the, you know, like I said, the communities at like 900 meters and that's not technically the reserve yet, but we've done sampling there. So we'll talk from 900 meters to the ridgeline at 2000 meters. And so as you go up, like at the community where there's a lot of habitat disturbance and the forest structure is not there, there's only like a hand, small handful of Pristomanus that we can find there. And mainly Pristomanus okay. acatinus, which is the, the most common one by far in disturbed right. habitat. As you go into the reserve, though, the, the diversity of Pristomanus spikes. And the ones even you find at the first uh, base camp um, or the cabin uh, are different than the ones that you find at the ridgeline base camp. So as you go up the side of this one slope, you're going to get completely different Pristomanus assemblage than you do just from a couple hundred meters below and you as you're surveying up the slope you see that transition too and i mean to me it just speaks volumes to the the uh, plethora of niches that you can you know these species are able to occupy and which helps you know explain their diversity and so forth but it, it just I, I just love that concept of you know just seeing how the diversity of uh these assemblages and the composition of them changes as you go up the, the mountain there very cool very cool let me ask you about uh, we've kind of been talking frogs and I could talk with you about frogs probably until the, the midnight or, or past. But what about uh, reptiles? Uh, I, I'm sure there are some, probably some anolis up there and lizards, uh, other lizards, and maybe a few serpents that get up in there. What 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 can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, I mean, the reptiles are uh, surprising almost as diversity amphibians as far as what we've documented so far. But yeah, so two of the most common reptiles in the reserve are anolis. Uh, so there's Anolis gemosus and Anolis equatorialis, and you have to close your eyes to not see them. They're super common. Um, yeah. Both are beautiful. beautiful incredible. Anolis. I, I, to be the most common lizards, uh, 
I'll take it, man. They're amazing. And, you know, quite a bit of uh, diversity and color and pattern just within those species as well, which is pretty remarkable. Right. But yeah, so, there, and there are some threatened reptiles in the reserve as well. So, there, you know, one is the spiny dwarf gecko, I believe is the common name. It's Lepidoblepharus conolepis, um, really tiny gecko that kind of, you know, goes in and out of the leaf litter, uh, the forest floor. Uh-huh. Um, and that's pretty common up near the higher elevations. You get to lower elevations, you're going to find Lepidoblepharus uh, grandis, which I don't know what the common name is, but it's another, you know, small, tiny gecko. And that one's listed as vulnerable. Uh, the, the former one is listed as endangered. Um, so, you know, it's relatively small distributions and, you know, their habitat is uh, slowly being diminished. But yeah, and they're relatively common as well. So, you know, reptile diversity is there and we are seeing a fair number of reptiles. Uh, Abundance-wise, with exception of some of the anoles, uh, you know, not quite as much, uh, especially with the snakes. They're hitting this. Is there a pit viper up there? Yeah, yeah. So there are four, uh, five. Four? Wow. Right, okay, we got the, okay, so one, I'm going to start with the best. (laughs) Well, one of the best. (laughs) We've got one dead specimen of a sub-adult Bushmaster that was uh, Doc. I know I haven't seen one yet there myself, which so I'm pretty jealous. But um, and that was found in 2019 by a local community member, or no, excuse me, one of the reserve staff. But it had been injured, so maybe one of you know someone might have come across it and uh, you know and, and reacted how a lot of people react. I'm by no means going to villainize that, and we can get to some improvement in that realm later. But um, yeah, so Bushmaster is definitely there. Um, the common Bothrops uh, is there. The Lancet Viper, Bothrops Asper. We've got. Surprisingly, I had one there. And then there's the eyelash viper, which might be distinct from lowland populations, but that work hasn't been done yet. But uh, nonetheless, I the specimen we found there is the most beautiful specimen of an eyelash viper I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it looks like a, a candy cane or something. I don't know. It's incredible. Oh, wow. Um, and they're rare. Like I, I've seen the one, and I think uh, another team has seen one as well. So there, as far as I know, there's been two individuals found. Um, okay. And then the most common viper there is uh, Bothrocopius campbelli, which is the Ecuadorian toad-headed pit viper or Campbell's toad-headed yeah. pit viper. And really yeah. fascinating viper. Um, we've seen at least one of those every trip. So, And they're listed as vulnerable. You know, that's another species that has relatively small range. Uh, they seem to be doing fine, you know, in the habitat where they're at. But, um, yeah, so that's there. And then there's uh, Bothrops osborni, which we found one dead one. Uh, certainly they're, you know, they're probably not that uncommon there, but just hard to detect. And I don't know, maybe they're not that common. Yeah. I assume things like Campbelli, uh, both Acropius Campbelli and things like that are probably more common around the, the village area, the disturbed habitat. Is, is that, uh, true or they, you find them up in the mountain too? You know, we have, you can find them as low down as the village, as far as their elevational distribution. However, we have actually found all of ours within the reserve in the primary forest. Um, you know, certainly they're probably... Including the Bushmaster? The, you know, the Bushmaster was in some transitional forest. But on a hike in, when you're hiking along the Rio Manduriaku, uh, you know, part of it is that it's just a big cattle path. And um, okay. it was it was found along that where there is forest on each side. But, you know, it's definitely disturbed. That's where it was found, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, my, uh, my Lachesis radar is... <laughs> is on a high frequency right now. I'm just, <laughs> I'm like, oh boy. Man, wow, these suckers down cool. in Peru, you guys find them every trip and I'm so jealous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's all skill. That's all I can tell you. It's all skill. Yeah. Uh, 
No, yeah, we have a we have a pretty good there. We we have a good population. Uh, also, uh, this is something else, and I, and I remember this got posted on your your Facebook feed, and maybe somebody else's about a snake uh, that hadn't been seen in years. Called, and I'm going to get this right: Fugler's shadow snake, uh, Emicleophis fugleri. I'm assuming it's not fugleri. That doesn't sound good. Fugleri sounds better to me. So uh, tell us about uh, Fugler's shadow snake. It's funny you say that. We're going to go with Fugler's. I've, I've said Fugler's all along, but I, I have no is idea. It, is it Fugler? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean I, if, my, if, my na- if that was my name, I'd be Fugler. I wouldn't be Fugler. Yeah, maybe I've been messing it up all along. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, crazy. I mean, so Fugler's shadow snake, a Mokleophis. Uh, well, see, I say Fuglerized. I guess that's where I'm getting that from. But uh, okay. Fugleri, whatever. All right. Um, but so yeah, this snake, like it's the second species from the reserve that prior to us documenting, um, our observation at the reserve was known from one specimen, no color photographs known, uh, nothing known about it. Uh, so this is the second rediscovery, so to speak. And, um, yeah, that's a funny story. Like, I'd love to say like, you know, we came across it and we're like, boom, rediscovery, but that's not how it works. So Scott Tregesser, who's, uh, my colleague and good friend, uh, you know, he's uh-huh. He's the, the president of our work. He, uh, you know, he's, he's my field buddy and we're hiking along one night and he comes across this snake and he's like, dude, come here. What do you think this is? And I, you know, I look at it and, you know, you guys might have seen the images of it, a small black snake, right? Yeah. And it looks a lot like this snake called Ninia um, Atrata or there's another one, uh, Ninia Terracite. Um, yeah. And it yeah. looks a lot the like coffee them. snakes. Yeah. yeah. Like they're, and they're super common. They, you know, they're pretty characteristic of this region. But I knew something looked different about it. And I'm thinking, I was like, this has got to be an India. But, you know, I, you know, I don't have any literature on me. You know, we're, you know, pretty remote and I'm looking at it. And then something spoke to me enough to be like, we got to take some good photographs of this. Unfortunately, I, I, it was the last day in the field. I had, you know, you've got to make some tough decisions. And I did decide not to collect it. Uh, in retrospect, that was a poor decision. But, um, yeah, so, you know, we cut, took some photos of it. Scott got some good uh, super macro shots of it. I took some lab shots. That was that. Boom, let it go uh, where we found it. And um, and then, you know, when you get back from a trip, as you well know, like life is busy. You're trying to catch up with things. And one of our one of our good friends and collaborators, Jaime Culebras, uh, with Photo Wildlife Tours, he's been part of our field team. Oh, yeah. Yeah, r- really good guy. I, I, I love Jaime. Um, great photos. How do you not love Jaime? He's, he's, he's the character. Um, so he, you know, he's WhatsApping me and he sends me a message. This is like, you know, what, a few months after the trip or something like that. And you know, I get the WhatsApp. He's like, Hey bro. He's like, Hey, by any chance, do you have photos of like maybe a strange Ninia? And if you do, let me know when you're looking at them because let's go over this. And I was like, Oh, why? What's up? And, um, he's like, what? And what I said to him, I was like, you know, funny you mentioned it. I was like, I haven't looked into this, but there was an interesting Ninia that we got. But I was like, let me get behind my computer, blah, blah, blah. And he says one of his friends up in Colombia has just rediscovered uh, a super rare snake called Amocleophis uh, meops. And so I'm like, oh, man. So he's caught my interest. So I'm like running to my computer, turn it on, pull up the photos. And sure enough, the scalation that you need to diagnose this species from Ninia, it's there. And so, you know, I'm, I'm messaging him and I'm like, Dude, we have one. <laughs> wow. So we had no idea what we found in the field. And you know, Scott came across it and he's like, hey, what do you think this is? And I'm like, oh, probably a mini, you know? No, no, definitely not. No. 
So wow, there's a lesson in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> you know, field work comes with a lot of decisions, and when you're working in a region that's so biodiverse, you know, you're not going to make all the right calls. Um, you know, we tried to, yeah. but uh, we, we're always learning, and that's what I love about it. Yeah, well, that's very good. I I love this story because it's you just you just never know. Yeah, yeah. You, you never you just never know what what's going to be, and, and it sounds like maybe it just didn't look quite right either, right? It, just didn't come across as your typical ninia. It, yeah, it didn't. You know, the, like the kind of the gestalt of it was off. Um, the head is more elongate. Um, you know, this, this, the larger scales on the head, the prefrontals, and there, you know, there's no L'Oreal. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't take notes specifically of this, but, you know, when you've seen enough snakes and you look at, you know, something that just stands out as being off, I mean, normally that turns a light bulb on and you're like, okay, we got to, you know, like, let's collect it. I, there's always a lot going on in the field. And like, you know, like I said, I just made a poor call. That's on me. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, you, you know, know, and it's, it's no light. It's not an easy decision to collect an animal. I mean, you do it for science, but it, you just don't willy nilly collect, you know, bags and bags and bags of stuff. Yeah. Unless there's a good reason to. Yeah. No, I'm glad you uh, say that because that, that does, you know, I talk about a lot going on in everything too, but I guess it is important to note, like our kind of, our default for how we go about things in the field is exactly what you said. Like you, we try to be as mindful and conscientious as possible when making those decisions. We do, when the biodiversity group goes out in the field, our objective is not to collect everything. We only collect what's necessary. And, you know, fortunately Juan Guaysamin has been on the same page and Echo Minga really wants us to be very, and Sebastian Khan as well, who owns the property. Um, they all, we know how sensitive this area is. So we collect only what's necessary. When we get it, you know, the new species, we'll collect, you know, five or six uh, specimens for the type series. That's it. Um, right. And, and because case, that's what you need. You yeah, have to do that. Exactly. To, to, to describe it. I mean, you know, taking the specimens is important. We want to permanently document the presence at this reserve. Um, I, I hate to even think that the reserve might not exist for future generations, but that's a very real right. possibility. Um, so we're documenting their presence permanently and we can document a little bit of variation and also have that tissue too. So we can look at their, you know, how they're related to other species and look at their phylogenetic relatedness. And that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for, for giving us a little more detail on that because I'm, I think most of my, my listening audience understands the need to, if you're going to protect that species, the, there has to be some small sacrifice by individuals in the species, unfortunately, but it's for the better betterment of the species in the long run. Yeah. This is here. This is new. This must be protected. So the only way to get there is to go through the scientific process of describing the species or whatever it is. Of, you have to go through that process in order to protect the animal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know. It's, it is necessary. I, you know, in the old days, I just collect everything. And, you know, there's a lot right, of data right. that can come from that. But I, I think nowadays, like, having a, you know, a different mindset is really important. And especially with these species right. that are so rare. Yeah. And with all of the all of the things we can do now with tissues, with genes, and, and so on and so forth, we can get a lot more done with a lot fewer animals. Right? Exactly. We get a lot more information. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what else do you want to talk about with this, with this region? Um, you're going back there, obviously, uh, you're going to go every year or what do you go, How many times a year do you go there? What's, what's the plan? So I am hoping to get back there this summer. I've 
had a bit of a knee issue, which has been holding me up a little bit. But yeah, so this summer I'm hoping to go back. And you know, our goal is to we're, we're trying to we're trying to get data from you know each month that we haven't collected data from before. You know, ideally we, I mean, ideally I just live there and <laughs> collect data all the time, but I, I can't do that. Um, but yeah, so I, we're gonna no. go back. I, you know, I haven't made plans definite, but this summer and get some data for months that we haven't been there. So it's, you know, technically the dry season, so to speak, or probably better termed as the not so wet season, but still wet nonetheless. Right. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, we have not gone to this reserve a single time or, you know, there's been one or two other groups that have gone in there independently uh, for other data. And um, we haven't been there once and not documented species that are were the first time being documented for the reserve or you know, a new species or rediscovery or something like that. So for example, we're about to have a paper published hopefully soon on a, another glass frog species that is a huge range extension from Columbia. Um, Scott, Jaime and I, we were doing a jungle dance when I first picked it up. I was like, look at this glass frog and all of us are just like, we're dancing. We're thinking it's a new species. Like it's definitely something different. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's still super cool, but it's a species that has been described, but is really rare and only known from Colombia. So that will hopefully. So it's new, new for Ecuador. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Really cool. Um, you may, you may still dance. You, you may dance over that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that's allowed. A lot of dancing <laughs> happens at the reserve. You know, it's a lot of good stuff. <laughs> um, so there's well, tell that. Tell me. Uh, yeah. Go okay. ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, there, there's that, and. Um, you know, and all of our data suggests too that you know, as the species accumulation curve is still going up, and yeah, in these forests, it's really hard to document everything that's there anyway. So, I mean, there's still so much more to do there, uh, for sure. Right. It sounds hard, but it sounds like you're getting a huge kick out of what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, this is I'm living my childhood dream, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I wish it I wish it paid, but it's paying with quality well, of life, so I'll take it. Yeah, yeah I, I hear you. <laughs> and, and that's okay. Oh, well, let me let me let me ask you about the local folks. You have some folks in the village, and and you rent mules. It sounds like so you you have some local people that are helping you, and are are they on board? And what's 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 that? Is there a trans? Because I've I've talked to other people where you've got some conservation efforts in an area, and you start involving the local people, and they start getting a buy-in from them, and they start caring, and they start protecting the animals, and. And pretty soon they're they're your best allies in the whole process. So is is that kind of thing happening uh, in that if for the Rio Mandariaku? Yeah, yeah, it's been it, you know it's been really good and uh, just a good experience overall to kind of see this dynamic play out. But so the local community, uh, they're just a beautiful group of people. I, I love them. Um, they have been open to us gringos coming in there, and you know we're the only we're the first and only gringos that have stayed in this community. And they have opened their homes to us. Um, they've been so friendly. We we danced with them at one of their at their Christmas and New Year's party last or 2019, excuse me. Um, oh, cool! And we've gotten to know a large number of them, and especially the kids. The kids have been they've been great. You know, we had a donation from Phoenix Flashlights, and we brought them down there because you know one thing we really try to do is uh, you know bring them into the, what we're doing and not make it just like Gringos coming in, collecting data, and get out. And it's not that it's just us. Obviously, we're collaborating with Ecuadorians. Um, so right, right. You know, yeah, the, this is not the ugly American story. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's you know, you're you're involved with a, uh, local scientists and local people is for that whole spectrum, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a huge collaboration. Like the biodiversity group is just one element of what's happening at this preserve. Um, okay. And and the and the local community is is integral in this effort. I mean, they they give us access to their properties if we're going outside of the reserve. Um, they come with us for night hikes sometimes. They've been they we paid them to you know help do some cooking, which has just been a huge uh, help. You know, when we don't have the time, uh, we rent the meals from them. I mean, these people are I. You know, they're friends. Like, I, I really I really appreciate their company. The kids are enthusiastic. So that one observation of the Landshed Viper, Bothrop's Asper, um, that was, that's a cool story because that was, man, I'm going to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. Just, I think, them seeing what <laughs> we do and our passion for doing what we do, um, that, has, that has definitely influenced their outlook on the snakes. Whereas at one time, a viper spotted, you know, and this isn't unique to them, obviously. Yeah, it's machete. Um, so one morning I woke up when we were staying in the community and one of the kids was just saying, you got to come now. And like Sebastian, who was there as well, the, you know, the the landowner who lives in Quito, um, he was, he's like, man, you got to get up, get out of bed. You know, I'm a, I'm a late riser. (laughs) I'm like a frog. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So I get up and he's just going crazy. Like there's a big snake come, come. And sure enough, it's, it's a boat drops aspirin and it's alive. And, you know, I'm not coming to a dead snake like we once would have done when they say, yeah. hey, you know, we've got a snake. But it's so it's really nice to see that transition from here's a dead snake. Tell me what it is to like, come check the snake out quick before it gets away, because we didn't kill it. It wasn't machete time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Very good. Very good. And 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 how how you react to the snake and deal with the snake. They're watching you. They're they're studying how you relate to the snake too, right? I mean, they're looking for information for how to proceed in the future too, whether you whether you realize yeah. it or not. You know, they're like, well, okay, well, look how he did this, and look what he, you know, look well, look at his reaction to this, and if you're going, oh, cool, you know, and you you know you're treating it with respect and so on and so forth, that that just rubs off like nobody's business. I know, yeah, no, they're super observant. They ask a lot of questions. Um, uh-huh. Our experience with them has been has been really fun, um, and you know they they like using our our field hooks as uh, golf clubs and just to play around, <laughs> pretend like you know everything's a snake and they're wrangling it. So they they, they you know they they have a lot of fun, um, and uh, you know speaking of snake hooks, I'm gonna say this now. You know I mentioned Phoenix flashlights. I like to mention people that have supported the work we're doing because we're we're just immensely. Oh, please grateful. go ahead. But man, you know, a lot of people make snake hooks. I know our buddy Mike Clarkson is making his now, and I'd love to check them out. But I've got to give a shout out to um, to Stony Animal Equipment by Stony because I got off the phone with him the other day, and he is donating uh, a handful of field hooks that we can bring down there for the reserve staff of you know Echo Mingo's reserve staff, and one for the community as well, so they can have one there to you know move the snake. Um, so big shout out to Stony, um, and yeah, so we're going to be bringing some equipment down there for them this next trip. And, you know, these types of influences are huge because there is one more thing I want to talk about. And this is it's the, what these people are having to navigate. So this community doesn't have access to a lot of jobs and mining is encroaching fast. And, you know, they're like anyone else. They want to make a decent living. They also realize that the habitat that surrounds them is, is, is really important. The fresh water that they use. I mean, we just drink straight from the stream when we're there. It's that clean and that pristine. Um, right. Mining comes in, it's game over. Like they're going to have jobs for however many years and then mining will move on and that community will have to be relocated. The fresh water won't be there. There will likely be local extinct. There will be extinction events in real time, such as potentially Rabo Alalai. 
Nymphargus menduriaku, um, yeah, a handful of species. There's the brown-headed spider monkey in the reserve, which is one of the most threatened primates in the world. There's the western jaguar, uh, which is also threatened. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. There's orchid species galore. There's some our good friend Marco Monteros for Echominga is describing now. Um, he's an incredible orchid biologist. Uh, so there's a lot going on, and they recognize this importance, but they also want to live good lives. So they're put between a rock, rock and a hard place. Yes. So really quickly, I just want to, I'm not going to get into it because we probably don't have time, but there are two major court cases going on in Ecuador concerning mining. So I'll talk first about, so there's the Lurimagua uh, court case and there is the Los Cedros court case. As I mentioned before, Reserva Los Cedros is right next door to the Menduriaki Reserve. When I say next door, we're talking about like bloop, jump over the ridge line and you're in the southwestern and most remote, remote part of that reserve. So in a nutshell, the court case is about, is mining violating the constitutional rights of rights to nature? Ecuador is the first and still is the only country in the world to have rights of nature uh, embedded within the constitution. And so this court case is sending around the protection of Bosque protectors, um, which are the protected forests, and Los Cedros is one of them. So is Cebu on the other side of the other ridge line. Um, and there's lots of these protected forests across um, Ecuador. So the outcome of this court case has the potential to largely dictate what happens to Minduriaku and more importantly to all of these species in this region that is incredibly unique. Wow. So I don't think, uh, I've heard that, but I don't think a lot of my listeners know that. Say that again about the land itself is recognized as an entity in the constitution. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah. So it's, there's a clause in the constitution that gives the rights uh, to nature. So, and then, the you know, rights to nature. Okay. Yeah, or the rights of nature. So, and that includes river systems. So, clean what the right to clean water, the right for life, essentially. So, the right for species to exist, um, and which is an acknowledgement of how Ecuador has looked on an international scale and within the local people. I mean, the people in Ecuador care about their biodiversity and their their natural heritage. Um, but you know, that's, like I mentioned, that's incredible. That's a that's an incredible leg up though, isn't it compared to other countries? I mean, like our own, you know, like the United States, it's like, well, we're going to, we bought this mountain and we're just going to take the top right off of it and we're going to ruin everything. And you guys are just going to have to put up with it. Yeah. It, so that at least there's a fighting chance. You know, there's a fighting chance. And the reason there's a fighting chance is not because of government, because, you know, they just had their elections and uh, a conservative rich bank, like ex banker is now going to be the president of Ecuador. But and Ecuador has a history of having a populist kind of leftist government. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Both of these systems work to exploit the natural resources of the country in order to, you know, build roads and to, and to bring people out of poverty. So it's this dynamic that's really complex and challenging. And one thing that I think is important is that the people of Ecuador do realize the importance of, uh, you know, clean water and the biodiversity towards the potential of uh, ecotourism. Um, yeah. the region, so the, you know, you might've heard of the Intag, the, the Intag Valley, the Intag region. Um, and that's, Menduriaku Reserve is essentially in the far Western part of the Intag region, so to speak. And this region has a history of anti-mining, um, sentiments and like, and their local government, like the county courts and the state courts, so to speak, which is the province courts, um, they have enacted policies and laws that designate this area as 
you know, with regulations so that mining and like super extractive, um, you know, agencies can't come in and destroy the habitat. So, and that's all locally driven. It's local communities coming together to make their voices heard. And that is how action happens. And then of course, you know, NGOs in the country and out of the country, supporting them and getting behind them and helping them provide the data to demonstrate how important this is. Um, so, well, there's, there's gotta be, um, there's gotta be room for, uh, more development of ecotourism, uh, correct? I mean, that's that's obviously one way for folks to make a living. You get the like you know, like Costa Rica and other places where people learn to be guides and learn they learn birds and they become you know a bird guide or whatever. And and that industry kind of you know once you have a number of people working in that industry, support you know you got people who are cooking and. Uh, providing places for birders and herpers to stay and th- so on. So, so it kind of builds after a while. I mean, yeah. it, it, do you think that that's uh, happening there or is that a potential or? Yeah, you know, it's, it's happening. The, the thing is, is like, you know, it's like they say, like, you know, bad things happen overnight, good things happen over time. So ecotourism, you know, like Mendo's kind of the template. Like most people know of Mendo, you've been there, you see the dynamic, it, it works. And it, it really uses the, the, you know, the biodiversity and the surrounding habitat. Um, it's the source of the economy there, local economy. Right. And, you know, the objective is to have the Intad Valley kind of incorporate those elements into the area and not become just a destroyed area that, from mining. Because mining is not pretty no matter how you look at it. Um, but, of course, right. society has demands and, and life is complex. Um, and so all a mining company has to do is go in and, you know, buy out some local community members. And that's not to villainize them. I mean, they need money. Like, I, I can understand it. Um, but it's easy for them to go in and just offer some money and say, we can give you money here and now, and it's more than these biologists or anyone else is going to offer you. And that's true. Right. I mean, there's yeah. no two ways about it. So all we can do is not come in and say, like, if you do this, like, if you clear this habitat, you're bad, and what you're doing is you're destroying species. That's, that's not productive, and that's not going to help. What right. we try to do is just say, like, hey, you know, like, we really care about this. And I can tell you guys do. You guys use it for hunting. And, it's, it, like, this is your natural heritage. And we're just interested in helping understand it along with you guys. And, um, you know, those guys over there fishing in the river, mining comes, they can't do that. Like, the, 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 the waterways right. are going to be polluted. And uh, your jobs, like, they're going to pay well, but they will be temporary. And at some point, you guys might not be able to live in this community that you're bringing your kids up in and, and so forth. So that's right. It's really complex, and my heart goes out to all of these areas that are, are dealing with this. But going back to the court cases, they there's the two both are at the Constitutional Court of Ecuador, which is the equivalent of our of our um, Supreme Court, and mm-hmm. um, and they're both like we're waiting on decisions on these court cases now. So there's the Los Cedros one, which is essentially like rights of nature and can mining happen in Bosque Protectores, which are the protected forests. And then there's the Lori Magua uh, case, which is also at the uh, Constitutional Court. And that one, us herpers, this is going to be cool. So that one is centered around two frogs. And the Lori Magua is after the Lori Magua mining concession. And this is also, okay. in the, this is really close to the Mendoriaca Reserve, just a little further east um, than Los Cedros. And it's near the Hunin community. And um, so there's two uh, critically endangered frogs that were rediscovered there. There's the long-nosed uh, harlequin toad, Atalopus longirostris, and there is oh, the yeah. confusing rocket frog, which uh, is Ectopoglossus uh, um, confusus, and they are only known from this site. 
in the in the mining concession, right smack dab in the middle of it. And so if mining happens, boom, goodbye. They're, I mean, we're watching extinction happen in real time. Um, I, you know, as you guys noticed, like we could say the same about the Mendoriaki Reserve, and it's not that just these two areas. Like this characterizes the region. So our, you know, what we're what everyone, local communities, the NGOs working in the area, what we're all hoping to establish is that not that mining can't ever happen, but it needs to happen prudently. Like they need to make their decisions in a way that they can mine certain areas, but not in protected areas that are already established and protecting you know, critically endangered species and you know frogs, right. orchids, trees among them. So you can't you can't destroy a drainage a drainage yeah. Yeah. through collateral damage or direct damage you you can't do that yeah so you know it's a complex situation and time will tell so do we do you expect some decisions soon on that or <laughs> who knows yeah, well you know they were supposed to decide on that back in january or like december even oh but my. you know like they've been they've been having their elections and everything and um you know maybe they're kind of sitting on their hands thinking like am i going to have a job depending on how we sweep i have no idea i can only speculate um sure but you know, a decision plus, could plus be made. Plus, there's anytime. COVID, and you know, we have COVID to deal with. So lots, lots going on. So. Yeah, yeah. This this world, I'll tell you, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons that might be influencing it. But uh, yeah. So, well, hopefully, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed, and hopefully, everything works out. It's uh, something to keep you know. an eye on. But you know, like I, I think it's good for your listeners to hear it too, because this is real. Like, I mean, Ecuador is you know getting more and more popular as far as from a you know the herping community desire to go there and check it out and see some of these herpetological gems um it might not be there for your kids when they want to go herping there and, and these are really tough things to navigate and you know society as a whole yeah. is just it's a monster you know so i just hope that we can influence the kids and work to just bring people together not divide them and and we can put our heads together and just try to make the best decisions possible in a very complex world i like how you put all that that's beautiful perfect Thanks. well <laughs> let me switch gears here you're talking about uh, going up there and the local folks, you know, they feed you and cook for you. So what are you, what are you eating up there? Man, I, we're, we're, we're living large up there. <laughs> these, these, okay. I'm going to say like, not, I, I've studied in a lot of places of Ecuador. I don't know, normally go to Ecuador for the food, but man, that, these ladies and, and the guys too, they know how to cook. I mean, they make soups yeah. that are incredible. They make their own homemade bread, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not a big meat eater, but when people offer me food, I, I don't say anything. I eat because I'm grateful. Um, and they, the, the meat okay. they cook, the way they flavor their meat is incredible. Um, I love everything that I'm offered. <laughs> like, we eat good there. We really do. Okay. So it's not just uh, rice and beans and uh, the side <laughs> of the road. or We have rice and beans, but it's just not strictly rice and beans. <laughs> but, but there's more to it than that, yeah. Yeah, you know, especially when we stay in the community. That's when we're spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> uh, it, it sounds so cool. And, and and if you haven't been to Ecuador, folks, it, it is a super place to go. It, without even going to the Galapagos, you can go there and find all kinds of cool frogs. Um, you can go up to Mindo, and it's a great place to uh, to start, right? It's a great place to break into the country. I went up there and had you know, a few days up there, and it was just amazing. Uh, and the birds were cool, and... Uh, uh, you can, uh, it, it's all set up for you. It, you have an entire ecotourism uh, a mechanism in place up there already. You just plug yourself into it and enjoy yourself. So, yeah, uh, I recommend it. Man, it, careful though, it'll ruin you. Like, I, you know, I went in 2007 and haven't <laughs> stopped going back. 
Um, but yeah, yeah. You know, Mendo- Mendo's a great introduction to that region too. Mendo's about 40 kilometers uh, straight line distance south of the Mendoriaki Reserve. So it, it, okay, very close. It gives you a good feel of you know where we're working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I um, quickly realized over the past couple of years going up to Mendo Valley and also um, uh, Fraser's Hill over in, in uh, Malaysia that. I kind of enjoy herping at 1,500 meters because it it's never gets too hot and never gets too cold. And it's, you know, there's still crazy cool herps everywhere without, uh, although you do have to climb up and down hills. That's the only drawback. So I <laughs> uh, can't get away from that. But It's uh, some good hiking for sure. Yeah. And you can get wet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we got, oh, man. And cameras will be murdered. <laughs> Yeah, t- take good care of your camera, folks. That's one mm-hmm. thing for sure. So, uh, bringing this all back around to the biodiversity group. Uh, now, some of my uh, listeners out there, they're they're really quick with a dollar, and they'll they'll uh, if you've got some kind of swag or or if you guys have a store where people can buy things to support the the organization, and people can probably make direct don- donations as well. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so of course, uh, we are so grateful to anyone that supports us of any amount. Um, you can go to our website uh, and direct uh, donate directly there. My uh-huh. my wife Natalie, she has made an Etsy shop where she is selling. Uh, you know, she's she's created some awesome swag where you can purchase things there. I can give you that link to put with the podcast. Yes, please do, and I'll put it in our show notes. Yeah, um, and uh, and you know, if you ever have gear like old gear like whether it be snake hooks or uh you know functioning and good headlamps or uh, camera gear we put all of that to use like for example we just shipped out a box like just today to the democratic republic of the congo um yeah that's a side note i won't get into but that you know of a laptop and camera gear not you know so if you have dslrs um point and shoot cameras that are waterproof uh, any good equipment we will put that to good use if it's collecting dust so keep okay. us in mind and, um, yeah, so there's a number of ways you can help. Okay. I may have a camera for you. Cool. All right. Okay. Not quite waterproof, but it might might work. Hey, you know, um, it, it'll get put to use, and it, and it really helps <laughs> so they have the opportunity to okay. take photos and upload it to an iNaturalist and help us out. So. Yeah. All right. Very good. So we'll put all that in the show notes. And what else do you, is there anything else about this that we haven't talked about that, that you're interested in getting across to the listening audience? Um, you know, there's probably a, a, a mountain of things, but I just I, I do want to point out that I, I I want everyone to support the biodiversity group. I really do, and and, and I hope you do. But I also want to acknowledge too that it, it is, you know, like Andrew Holy Cross has been saying for his book, it has just been a community of people that made it happen. This work is no different. Uh, Fundacion Ecominga, they're a fantastic organization that is doing a wonderful job of uh, managing and protecting this reserve. They keep staff in the reserve as much as possible to you know, keep an eye on it. They interact with the community. Um, so please keep them in mind. Uh, if you want to go herping in Ecuador, keep my buddy Jaime Culebras in mind. He, uh, he's got his company, Photo Wildlife Tours. Uh, there's no better person to take you on a Ecuador jungle trip. Pick where you want to go. Dude will take you. He's, he's so good in the field. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Do you have the Chaco then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it, you tell okay. him where you want to go and he's going to be like, dude, let, let's make it happen. Um, All right. And then my my good friend, Sebastian Cohn, he uh, it, he is the founder and uh, executive director of Fundas, or, um, Fundacion Condor Andino. So the 
Con- Indian Condor Foundation. Um, he does such good work, and he dedicates every every atom of who he is to conservation work. Keep him in mind too. And if okay. you want to go see uh, Indian Condors, you might be able to work something out with him where you support him, and then he'll give you an experience that's fantastic. So uh, we we work with okay. really good orgs, and I encourage you to keep them in mind too. Very good. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, before we go, though, um, you're out in Tucson. Do you do you do much herping in the Tucson area, or uh, all your efforts focused in in uh, Ecuador? Um, my brain, <laughs> my brain's always in Ecuador. Um, I get stuck behind the computer a lot, and I, I need I need friends like you to come to Tucson and say, Ross, get up off your butt. <laughs> And come out with me. No, I do, I do get out. Okay. You know, we got sidewinders here in the yard and Mojave's and Diamondbacks. Oh, cool. We got some good diversity. But as far as going and checking out like these different canyons, yeah, Arizona has so much to offer. I need to get up off my butt yeah. more and um, stop being so hyper-focused on, on everything I could do. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, that's kind of, yeah. it's, it's, what a problem to have, right? That's still, yeah. It's a, it's a hard <laughs> knock life for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I appreciate it. And I'm a frog guy. I'm an Ecuador guy. I, I love hearing about all this. And I, I think a lot of my listeners do too. And uh, I, I get a lot of comments from uh, people really enjoy hearing about conservation, herb conservation. That's a big that's a big deal to most of the folks that listen to this show. So I appreciate you coming on and giving us a, a yet another Great picture of, of some uh, interesting research and conservation work going on in Ecuador. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is a, is a privilege and a, a good platform to talk about our work on. So I, I thank you and I, I love your podcast. It's, uh, it really brings everyone together in a good way, you know, just different aspects of herpetology. So keep up the good work. Yeah. There. Thanks. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't all be Herper bros. I've got to, you know, I need to talk to the scientists and I, I need to talk to everybody. So that's, that's yeah. my goal. Yeah, this is keep, great. Keep this, keep it spectrum wide. So, yeah. well, thank you again for having me on. This is great, Ross Maynard. Thank you so much, and uh, and uh, give me all the links, and we'll put them in the show notes, and and folks can can help out from there. Perfect. Sounds good. Good talking to you. Likewise, man. Take care. Hey, it's me again with a short epilogue. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ross, and I just want to point you all once again to the show notes for some ways that you can help support the work of the Biodiversity Group. And I want to also point to the Cameras for Conservation link there because that's another cool way to help support conservation work. Uh, I've got a gently used point-and-shoot camera that I plan to send off and a headlamp as well. So if you've got some gear gathering dust on a shelf, you can uh, give it a second chance at usefulness. So please check out the show notes. I I know that pleas for help with conservation work are numerous, and I and Ross and the Biodiversity Group appreciate any help you can provide. Now let's cue that cool bass line. That's it for Episode 39. I want to thank Ross Maynard for coming on the show, and I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation. And I, for one, appreciate people who are very passionate about their work, and Ross is certainly one of those. And I want to say thank you once more to Martin Habecker, Daniel Dye, Clint Hankey, 
Ross Maynard and all of the folks who support the show. And if you would like to throw in a few bucks to keep the show rolling, please visit patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is one word or contact me directly for Venmo and PayPal options. Don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herpsters. And you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to herp better. 